welcome to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we are talking about the grotesque politicization of the Uvalde tragedy, looming power shortages, shrinkflation hitting restaurants, and we'll finish up with a story on how money is now being thrown back into law enforcement. Next, I'm Living with Liberty. honest, I really didn't want to cover the Uvalde tragedy, at least not yet anyway. I wanted to let the story breathe, let the facts come out before really digging in and offering some analysis on it. I think it was really appropriate, let's call it, to let the families in that town mourn without adding a bunch of circus and noise to what was already going on. But I can't, I find I can't be totally silent on it. And the reason being because, true to form, the blue checks on social media and the Democrats couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't keep quiet. They had to come out and start flapping their gums right away. Once again, they had to show their ignorance and that they only view the world through a political lens. And they had to use it as a virtue signaling photo op. As soon as the story broke, the disinformation and gun-grabbing attempts began anew, if they truly ever settled down after the Buffalo incident. It's absolutely pathetic the way the media and Democrats respond to a tragedy. You had, um, I just saw today, Meghan Markle in a, what looks like an obvious photo op, kneeling down at some sort of memorial Uh, You got Robbie O'Rourke running for governor in Texas who makes a spectacle of himself during the press conference being held in Uvalde with the town's mayor and Governor Abbott who were there to give an update on what was going on, to disseminate information, to let people know what happened there. And then you have Robbie O'Rourke standing up, politically grandstanding. Just gross, absolutely gross. O'Rourke's only agenda there was an attempt to score some cheap political points with his fringe base. And he's sitting there attempting to point the finger at the mayor and Governor Abbott, 
saying they did nothing to stop it. All it was was a, a, a grandstanding stunt because he knew there were going to be a bunch of cameras there. He knew there was going to be press there. He knew it was probably being televised live. There was no other reason for him to be there. There was no, I shouldn't say no other reason. There was no reason for him to be there unless he was there as a concerned citizen. But, but obviously he wasn't. So there was no reason for him to be there. He's, he doesn't even live in that town. No reason for him to be there. There was no reason for him to do that. No reason for him to interrupt that press conference where the governor and the mayor of that town were trying to disseminate information to the citizens of that town on what happened, what was going on, how they had the situation secured, etc. And then you have Barack Obama, who decided it was more important to note that that day was the two-year anniversary of the George Floyd incident, totally glossing over the Uvalde tragedy, when he tweeted this out. He said, As we grieve the children of Uvalde today, we should take time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the, the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. What the hell? Obama just said in that tweet that those kids and teachers' lives didn't matter. That those kids and teachers' lives were not as important as that of a career criminal who should bow down and genuflect before. Absolutely disgusting. What a shameful human being Barack Obama is. This level of grandstanding and politicizing of this tragedy is grotesque. We have two we have two teachers dead, we have 19 kids dead, and all these clowns can think about is how they can spin it for their political career, how they can turn it into a photo op to virtue signal, or how we should be thinking about a a, a career criminal that died 2 years ago. And that's where our focus should be. Pathetic. Here's the bottom line. There's two factors at play here. One, and we need to understand this, that there is no political answers. I'll say it again, no political answers to preventing this situation from happening in the future. No amount of a legislation is going to prevent this from happening. It doesn't matter what you do. Why? Because, one, criminals don't follow the law, for one. Two, it's not a law issue, it's a heart issue. It's a mental health issue. It's a what are we doing to our kids, our teens, our men, our women issue. Mostly men, mostly boys, young kids in their 20s that this, that this is happening with. Until we recognize that the government does not have the answer to these situations, they will happen again. It doesn't matter what law you put in place, people will ignore it if they want to commit a crime. If they want to do this, they will commit they they will figure out how to do it. Doesn't matter what law you put in place. And that's our the fallacy of thinking we have here is that we can legislate this away. It cannot be legislated away. It has to we have to get at the heart of people. We have to understand what's going on if they're having uh, displaying mental health issues, then we have to help them somehow. Laws do not address the root cause here. What do laws do? What does legislation do? What does all this grandstanding these garbage human beings are doing uh, accomplish? 
laws uh, do not address the root cause. They only give politicians something to point to when they're on the campaign trail as an accomplishment. Oh, I, after the Uvalde shooting, I did blah, blah, blah. After this, I did blah, blah, blah. And it didn't solve the problem. We got to be smart enough to realize when they say that, that it didn't solve the problem. The true root cause in these, these situations lies with the individual. What's going on with them? What is their heart? What are, is their background? What is their mental state? The true root cause lies with how we as a society treat people exhibiting signs of mental illness, who are exhibiting signs of, of, of just not being right, that something's off, they're depressed, whatever. The root cause lies with how are we addressing that issue? How are we addressing the heart issues if it's not a mental illness illness issue? Until the people, until we as a people acknowledge these types of issues, until we acknowledge that the root cause isn't we don't isn't that there's enough legislation, isn't a law issue, that it's a heart issue, these events will keep happening. End of story. They will. It's proven throughout the, the course of history. Second, the second thing this proves here, the response from the Democrats shows what a bunch of political vultures they are and that they have no ideas, that they can't admit that their policies are crap and haven't prevented a damn thing. They have two choices when this stuff happens. We're down to two choices here, and that's it. One, they can grandstand and do the divide and deflect like they've been doing. The other choice is that they admit that their progressive ideas has been a failure, which we know they won't do, so grandstand and cause division is what they will do. That will continue to be their mode of operation. Division and deflection keeps people occupied and not focused on the lack of ideas that they have. Keeps them, the people focused on the, the fact that their laws, the, their ideas haven't yielded any solutions. That these things keep happening over and over, even though we've put laws in place. Admitting progressivism is a failure would be an admittance that pushing God out of the picture, that absolving everyone of any sort of accountability for their actions, no matter what they were, big or small, was the wrong move. And that has had a hand in creating our declining society. And what we also know is that politicians are never going to admit that they were wrong. That's why they won't pick choice two here. That's why they will continue to divide, deflect, try and, and take our constitutional rights because they cannot admit that this idea of progressivism has caused the decline of our society, that it has made our society less safe. Not everything is political. Not everything has a political solution. The sooner we realize this, the quicker we can get on to addressing the root cause of these issues. If you are listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. 
And whether you are listening on the audio version or viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right. Are you ready for the potential for rolling blackouts this summer? It's not only California that is looking at this reality. According to a Bloomberg report, a vast swath of North America from the Great Lakes to the West Coast is at risk of blackouts this summer as heat, drought, shuttered power plants, and supply chain woes strain the electric grid. Power supplies in much of the U.S. and part of Canada will be stretched, with demand growing again after two years of pandemic disruptions, according to an annual report. It's among the most dire assessments yet from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, a regulatory body that oversees grid stability. Of course, climate change is also being pointed to as a culprit. This also from the Bloomberg piece. Climate change is partly to blame. A historic drought is covering the western U.S., limiting supplies of hydroelectric power and forecasts that call for a hotter-than-average summer. But the fight against global warming poses its own risks as old coal Uh, Older coal-fired plants close faster than wind farms, solar facilities, and batteries can replace them. All right. Yes, the climate changes all the time. You're not going to get an argument from anybody that is being intellectually honest that climate doesn't change because it does change. We are just, I think, wrong in our thinking that we have as much impact on it as we do. It depends what we do. You go back to my last show where I was talking about how actually the cleaner air is removing the particulate from the the atmosphere, which is allowing more sun sun rays to hit the ocean, warming the ocean. So, yeah, we in that respect, we can have an an impact. And if if we weren't cleaning that up, maybe we wouldn't have as much global warming. Maybe we would. You look at throughout history and you look at things scientifically, we're one super volcano eruption away from an ice age. And the amount of particulate and ash and everything else that that would spew into the atmosphere. So yes, climate changes all the time. It ebbs and flows. Areas go through droughts all the time. And they go through times of plentiful rainfall. There's times of above-average temperatures and times of below-average temperatures, seasonally, year-to-year. Sometimes multiple. it takes multiple years for the cycle to change. But then again, that's why we have average temperatures. You, that's, again, the fallacy sometimes. You look at, well, the average temperature says it's 80, and it's been 102 for the last, uh, you know, three months. Okay, that happens. Right? Or, hey, it was 102 last week and 60 this week, and now there's your average temperature of, of uh, 80, 80, 82, whatever I said. <laughs> that, that's Wisconsin weather for you, honestly. This stuff happens all the time with the climate. Do we have an impact? Sure, we have an impact. You know where I think the impact is mostly had? It's on the air quality. Uh, like I said, I pointed to in the NOAA study I, I, I went over in my last show where it's not good to have all that particulate in the air uh, in us breathing it, but also it seemed to serve a purpose of reflecting some of the sun's rays back out into the 
uh, back out into space where it's not warming the ocean, causing more hurricanes. Am I for getting particulate out of the air? Yeah, absolutely. Who wants to breathe dirty air? At the same time, should we be treating uh, this climate change as a religion and and swinging so far to that fringe where that's all we talk about and we don't do things sensibly? No, absolutely not. You have to balance it. And that's where we lose this stuff because balanced approaches aren't what get headlines. It's, it's the fringe crap is what gets the headlines. Now, the key part of this uh, statement here from, uh, that I read from the Bloomberg piece is that older coal plants close faster than they can be replaced by the alternative sources. So uh, the question I have is why isn't anyone looking in how, how this can be better balanced? Why are we not asking that question? Okay, we we foresee a a uh, an issue with the power grid here, and having to to go through rolling blackouts. Oh, and it's being caused by uh, we're closing uh, coal plants faster than what we're replacing them. So why isn't anybody asking the question? How do we balance that? Why are coal plants being taken offline without adequate replacement power generation in place to meet that demand that 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 coal plant rep, you know is is servicing? It, it blows my mind, and it's stories like this, and then we're starting to wonder, well, how come we have issues? I, I don't. Sometimes I can't with this stuff. I can we think? How about this? How about we we have classes? It should be a requirement in classes, every level of schooling, on how to develop critical thinking skills, so we're not wondering. Oh, we're closing a, pl- a coal plant, and now we're uh, we're having to do rolling blackouts because we don't have enough power generation because we closed the plant, and and while well, we didn't build the uh, replacements soon enough. Uh, oh my gosh! Why? Why isn't anybody asking these questions? Why are we taking these coal plants offline without replacement power in place? Now I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it has something to do with we're sticking to the strict guidelines, if they're guidelines, of the, of the operational lifespan of the plant, which I understand. There's th- These plants have a lifespan. I get it. And then they're decommissioned. I understand that. But then why, when you when you have something with a defined end date, why isn't there a plan in place to have the the replacement for it up well ahead of the decommissioning date so you don't have a service interruption i mean if if businesses operated this way if businesses that weren't k- kind of monopolies like the power companies are operated this way they wouldn't be in business very long oh well i my plant you know you think about a manufacturing plant it it might have a lifespan and then a, a company might go and expand it well, you know, I'm, I, I know I have a, a drop-dead end uh, decommission date on my plant, but, uh, you know, I, we'll, we'll get around to building the next one when we, when we can. They wouldn't last because now you just, I have to decommission this plant and the next one isn't ready to go up on, and ready, uh, get up and running. So now, uh, you know, I guess we're just going to not have any sales. We're not going to have any products to sell. It's just stupid. What if can can we think about this stuff when before we do it? I mean, I, I like I said, I get it. These plants have a decommission date. They they have a, a set lifespan. 
um, why are we all of a sudden, and we have been for years, and, and some of that's just the unreliability of switching over to uh, these alternative sources. I mean, that's part of it. But, uh, you know, if, if you've got something with a, 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 something with a drop dead end of life date on it, why aren't you, uh, why aren't you executing that plan to replace it well ahead of that decommission date? Why is it, why is it being run right up to the last minute? Now let's say this, let's say I know that the lifespan of a coal plant is 50 years. Let's just say that as an example. So I know I need to work back from there on when I need to start planning and constructing its replacement, whatever that may be. It might be another plant, might be a nuclear plant, gas plant, wind farm, whatever. I, I know I got to do something. And whatever that selection is, I know how long it takes to build that. So why, why don't you work back and say, okay, if I'm going to decommission, I want to give myself a year to decommission this plant and maybe run these plants in parallel so I can work all the bugs out. Why wouldn't you do that? It's, I mean, it's really a simple thing when you have a set expiration date. I know 50 years from now, this plant is going to have to be decommissioned. I know it takes me four years to build a, uh, a wind farm, let's say, that would replace that, that power generation. So uh, maybe around year 45 of the operation of that plant, I'm going to start building my wind farm. It'll take me the four years, and I'll have a year where I can run it in parallel and bring down the coal plant and fully transition over the wind farm. I, it's not hard. It is not hard at all. Now, of course, you have the supply chain issues sprinkled in there as a reason as well. Fine. Okay. But then shuffle the decommission dates around until you can get the materials in for the solar and wind farms that are being built as replacements. We have simple solutions here to these problems. Like that decommission date isn't necessarily the hardest date in the world. We're just choosing to make it a hard date in the world because the, the, the uh, climate alarmists are beating down everybody's doors to get rid of coal and gas and nuclear and, and go to, uh, you know, making our our aesthetic environment ugly with these wind farms and solar panels. We, there, there's simple solutions here. Okay, well, we got supply chain issues, so we're going to have to keep this coal plant running a little longer. All right, do it. I mean, what the, the choice is do that or turn the lights out. I mean, so let's try and use these simple solutions and try and keep the lights on. All right. So the cancelers have gotten out there dredging machines and found their next victim, New York Yankees pitcher Nestor Cortez. Apparently, there was a dozen or so tweets out there from 10 years ago on his Twitter account that Cortez had dropped the N-bomb in. He was 17 or 18 at the time. Cortez closed his Twitter account and apologized, saying he didn't realize they were still there. Good, I applaud him for that. I I'll drop the story in the description box. He talks about how he wants to be a, a role model for kids and, and that that wasn't being it, even though it was from 10 years ago. Great. Guy took uh, ownership and accountability for his actions, closed his Twitter, wants to do right and be a role model. Great. I applaud him for that. Now, also according to that story, I'll link in the article, it said this. It said he didn't appear to be using it in a derogatory way at anyone and said he forgot they were out there. 
fine, right? I'd, derogatory or not, it's definitely a word that shouldn't be getting thrown out there. I, it's not a word that should be used in our lexicon at all. I also think that since this is from 10 years ago and has no relevance of uh, to today, it shouldn't be made a big deal of. Someone should have just said, hey, uh, Nestor, you know you got these tweets out there. You might want to go and clean your Twitter up. It's easy to do. Again, an, a simple solution. Now, it would be one thing if through the last 10 years, Cortez's feed was littered with tweets containing N-bombs and maybe being, uh, maybe having them pointed at somebody. But the tweets that surfaced were from 10 years ago. There weren't any containing that word since then. I mean, and then you think about this, too. So we're dredging this up about uh, uh, some tweets from a baseball player who tweeted something out there when he was 17 or 18. Uh, but we don't call out or say anything about the vitriol and the violent rhetoric that gets posted on Twitter and other other social media sites daily by especially by blue checks. I mean, it's by normal people too, right? But especially by the blue checks that just totally gets glossed over. No one seems to hold, uh, want to hold anybody accountable for those tweets. But nope, let's go back 10 years and dredge up some old tweets that dropped N-bombs that someone posted as a teen. You know what? Just a simple solution. Just clean them up. Move on with life. It's a non-story. We either have free speech or we don't. Whether you agree with the language, whether you think it should be used or not, we either have free speech or we don't. We either acknowledge that people can change over the course of 10 years or we don't. Simple as that. And it's clear. It's clear as day that Nestor Cortez changed over the course of 10 years. He changed his language. He was a teen when he, when he posted that. He's a 27-year-old, fairly successful Major League Baseball pitcher now. Just drop it. Why do we have to keep doing this? Why? It just another one of those things. Just incredibly stupid. All right. Gosh, it's just this whole show today. I'm. (laughs) It's got me edgy and and kind of upset. Just just the I the stupidity. Anyway. All right, have you noticed that you have been getting less food lately as you've gone out to your favorite restaurants? That's because shrinkflation is hitting restaurants. Costs to eat out have risen 7.2% in the last 12 months. So, hey, uh, we're doing better than the overall rate of, of inflation there with restaurants. You know, we're somewhere around, what, 8, 8.5 to almost 9. Eh, restaurants are at 7.2. I mean, that's a bargain, right? Restaurants, though, are worried that if they pass those costs on to their customers, onto the consumers, they'll see a decline in business. They're right. I mean, I, I was, uh, I, you know, worked in food. Um, we'd have this conversation that uh, once we saw gas prices going up, um, you know, people were would shift their buying patterns. They wouldn't buy what we were selling at the sit-down restaurants. They might go to... Um, a uh, more like a fast food restaurant, like a you know Arby's, Burger King, something like that, and, and get something that's a little more cost effective for them. Um, so, yeah, I mean it's 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 a real it's a real concern that restaurants should have that they jack up prices too much, they're going to see a decline in business. So, here's what Subway. So l- listen to these couple things here of, of what some restaurants are doing in terms of uh, of uh, contributing to shrinkflation here. 
So at Subway restaurants across the U.S., rotisserie chicken wraps and sandwiches have less meat. Domino's Pizza has cut down orders of boneless wings from 10 pieces to 8, and diners at Burger King will see the same reduction for their nugget meals. All right. You know what? Subway was already light on the meat to begin with. I mean, you were lucky if you got, you know, three slices of ham on that ham and cheese sub, and they, they, they slice it paper thin. I mean, it's... You need you need like two three drinks to get down uh, to to swallow all the bread when you go to Subway. I mean it was already light on the meat, so what it sounds like now is you're just left with cheese and vegetables at Subway. <laughs> I don't know how much more meat they can take off of there. Were they putting one little one little slice of ham or turkey or something in the in the middle of the sandwich? So you're you're chomping through your tomatoes and cheese maybe, and then you get to the middle of the sandwich and uh, oh well, there's my one piece of turkey or or rotisserie chicken I've got uh, for this one. Uh, and, and you know what? they char- I don't even know what they're charging. They, I know they don't have $5 footlongs anymore. What is six, seven bucks for one of those now? And you get one piece of meat on it? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, you know, I've said this before. These, these actions, they only stem the tide of, of the price increase that inevitably comes. You can you can take and shrink down the packaging. You can take and put less meat on something. You can take and and, and cut down the serving size. It only stems the, pro, the 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 tide on the price increase for so long, and prices eventually go up. And then at that point, not only are you paying more, but you'll be paying more for less product. Yeah, price increases suck. Nobody wants a price increase. But there are some things that I'm willing to pay more for to keep the same service uh, or the same package size with. And I'm not alone in this thinking. About 56% of U.S. diners say that they would be more willing to pay a little extra if restaurants clearly explain why prices are rising. And that's according to a survey commissioned by Market Man. I've seen several restaurants around here take this exact approach and do it successfully. They have a little... A, a, a little like um, memo or note uh, at their counter saying, "Hey, uh, prices have gone up." So now uh, they've gone and they've and they're, they're transparent about it. They say, "Yeah, prices on pork have gone up ten percent, twenty percent, whatever it is. Prices on beef are up, you know, fifteen percent, whatever." Um, and accordingly, we've had to raise our prices. And you know what else they've said? They said, "As soon as prices start coming down and our cost decrease, we'll decrease our prices." So why, why it's a price increase either way, whatever. And we'll get into what I mean by that in a minute. Whether you, whether you reduce the serving size or increase the price, you're taking a price increase either way. So why not keep the, the portion sizes people go to the restaurant to have or want instead of just reducing and, and raise the price and say, hey, look, here's what we've been hit with price-wise over the last Six months, twelve months, three months, whatever the timeline is, and we've had, we can't absorb those cost increases. So let's we've had to raise our prices, but hey, as soon as prices start coming back down, because what goes up must come down, right? We will start. We will reduce our prices back down, because there comes a point where you hit that uh, that tipping point of what the customer will value. If customers know, hey, prices are coming down, but you're still going to charge, you know, the higher prices when prices are coming down, then then you're not going to get customers back. Then they'll start going elsewhere or doing whatever. So I've seen restaurants around here do this successfully, and they haven't missed a beat customer-wise. 
Now, me personally, when I look at things, I look at overall value, not just price when it comes to certain things. There's some things where I look at and say, ah, just look at it from a price standpoint. And do I value that thing enough to pay that price? There's other things where I'm looking at and say, ooh, I, that, yeah, that's, that, that price is high, but the value is there. So if the value is there, I'll pay for it. If it's not, I won't, plain and simple. Now let's use this example here to, to kind of illustrate I alluded to before. Either way, whether you, you reduce the package size or you increase the price, it's a price increase either way. But it's the marketing of it that makes it seem like it's not a price increase to you. So let's, let's use this as an example. So let's say the price of wings, of those wings, is 10 bucks. If I'm getting eight wings for the same price I used to get 10, I probably won't buy them. Here's why. Because they went from a dollar a wing to a dollar 25 per wing, in essence, a 25% increase when that package size went from 10 to eight. See, that, that's what you don't, that, that's what we have to realize here is that the price I see on the menu didn't go up. So I'm like, oh, okay, the price didn't go up. Yeah, I'm getting less, but the price didn't go up. The price did go up. It went up 25% because I'm paying more per unit than I used to. So it is a price increase to me. I'm getting less for, and I'm paying more for less. I tend to think about things in terms of a unit price. So when I'm looking at things at the shelf, I'll like, I'll compare side by side. I'm like, and especially, uh, you know, grocery stores will do this with their promotions. I'll go and buy, a, you know, looking at the boxes of cereal, they've got, you know, the regular size and then like a medium size, whatever they're calling that's these days. And then a mega size. And I've seen even giant size out there. Okay. So they'll put the, the mediums or the regular size on sale and it's, you know, buy, you know, three for five bucks or whatever it is. And I'll look and say, okay, what's that compared to the giant size on a per unit basis? If it's a, uh, uh, the same price or, or less for the giant size, I'll buy the giant size, even though it's not on sale because on a per unit basis, it's as much or less. I mean, that that's what we don't do. And that's what marketers take advantage of when we're, uh, when they're looking at pricing and package sizes and all that, because most people don't think that way. I think about, and I, like I said, I look at things in terms of unit price. Most people don't, and they don't realize, they don't think about it. They don't realize that they're now getting less value for the money when serving sizes or packaging sizes are shrunk. When packages uh, and serving sizes shrink the price, and the prices remain the same, we are taking a price increase. It just doesn't seem like it at first glance because we don't do the math in our head. Are you looking for some new gear to show off your Patriot pride? Head over to Living with Liberty Outfitters. Whether it be a new t-shirt, hat, sweatshirt, tank top, or even some new drinkware, we have you covered. Head to livingwithlibertypodcast.com and click the store link to find the next addition to your wardrobe or your houseware collection. And as I did last year in honor of Memorial Day, all proceeds from sales through the end of June, will be donated to the A Soldier Child, A Soldier's Child Foundation. Okay, finishing up today, we have allowed the justice system to be so far broken that simply refunding the police will not be enough to draw officers back into the profession. I have an Epic Times piece here titled, 
Refunding police alone, not enough to curb crime, policing experts say by Kara Ding. It hasn't been just the defunding that has caused the issues, but also the reform bills, put that in quotes, reform bills, a lot of air quotes today, that some states jammed through in the wake of the George Floyd incident that are also a major contributing factor in recruiting and retaining officers for the profession. Ding notes in her piece that as crime rises and concerns about safety grow in an election year, city and state lawmakers are tapping federal pandemic relief funds to retain and hire more police officers. So in an election year, let me translate that. So uh, the Democrats that run these states where this, these, these horrible laws were passed are now uh, feeling the backlash from the public because they're getting mugged out in the street. They can't go anywhere safely. Uh, car, they're having their cars stolen. They're getting carjacked. There's people crapping all over their front lawn. So now they're concerned and say, oh, we better do something. So now let's throw some money at it. That doesn't go far enough. Throwing money at a problem doesn't fix it, and our elected officials need to get that out of their heads. Let's just throw some money at policing. That'll fix it. Uh, we'll go back to the point I made earlier. Let's just throw money. We're doing, hey, we're doing something. See, reelect me. That, that's what this is about. But also, it's not just the money that have pushed uh, officers out of the profession, that have prevented uh, potential officers from entering the p- profession. It's the short-sighted reform bills that have been placed on officers and law enforcement. It's the regulations from those reform bills that have been placed on officers and law enforcement that have them leaving the profession, that have them not entering the profession. Now, here's an example. The Colorado reform bill that they passed in the wake of the George Floyd deal made it so that citizens are able to file civil rights lawsuits against police officers and state courts And officers could not invoke qualified immunity as a defense. And and the officers can be held personally liable for remedies up to $25,000. If your employer came to you and said, even though you are working for us, any mistake you make will be held, uh, you will be held liable for, and the cost of it will come out of your check. Would you stay in that job? Would you even take that job with, given those stipulations? Would you even take any calculated risks in your job, or would you just play it safe? That is what officers are facing in Colorado. As a result, officers left the, prof- the profession in droves, and very few are entering. The ones that are left now are left with a choice on whether to apprehend a perp or not, because they are no longer protected by qualified immunity. So it's going through their heads that, hey, I could have a civil suit. I do this wrong. I could have a civil suit. I could uh, be on the hook for a $25,000 settlement. Uh, am I really going to engage in that cha- uh, car chase? Am I really going to engage on that foot chase? Yeah, Am I going to work? Uh, am I going to draw my taser gun and get into a, a potential... Uh, Uh, situation where I have to use force. I mean, these are all thoughts going through their head now. 
and criminals know this, and they're using it to their advantage. Don't think for one second that officers aren't paralyzed by this threat of having this, a suit filed against them and that the potential of being held liable uh, for up to $25,000 in damages isn't influencing their decisions they make on the job. That is impactful to one's family. The risk now becomes less about the safety of one's community, of putting myself, and if I'm, a, I'm an officer, and the, the risk is less, I'm thinking less about the risk of, of the line, being in the line of duty and protecting my community and what it takes to do that. And it becomes more about what's the risk to my family if I do one little thing wrong at this point. Now, let's put some numbers around this just to show the impact of, of the law and what this has done to the Colorado police force. Now, in 2021, more than 2,400 officers quit, and just 1,700 policing jobs were filled in Colorado, according to data obtained by CPR News from Colorado Peace Officer Standards and Training Board. So Colorado's had a net loss in their communities of 700 officers in 2021. That's leaving citizens exposed to longer wait times for a response. That leaves streets less safe because there aren't as many officers on patrol deterring criminals. Deterrence is a big, a big, a big part of, of public safety. Are you going to, to do something out in the open if the threat of getting caught is, is there? Probably not. I mean, but now it's, even though we have cameras and everything all, uh, everything all over the place, people are so brazen and bold now because there's no law enforcement there. This net loss of officers in Colorado leaves streets less safe because there aren't as many patrols going on. This is what happens. These are the kinds of things that happen when emotions and, and the media drive policy. We end up with short-sighted reforms that leave people less safe, that erode our freedoms and liberty. And you know what? Even if laws are adjusted immediately, it's going to take years to build police forces back up. It's going to take years to hire, train uh, new recruits, get them out on the streets, out in, in law enforcement, protecting our communities. People won't easily forget the disrespect and the vitriol hurled at officers over the last two years, three years, five years, whatever it's been. Many who would have considered law enforcement as a career will have gone down different paths at this point. They will be established in their careers by the time this money is being thrown at these departments to hire more uh, recruits from the academy. There, there won't be any recruits to hire because those people said, oh, I'm not going into law enforcement. That uh, The disrespect, I can't handle that. I can't do my job. I could be hit with a civil suit that uh, hamstrings me financially for years. I'm not, I'm not taking that risk. So, so just, just throwing money isn't going to solve the problem at this point. It, it never solves a problem, just throwing money at it. And now you have, like I said, you have officers that may be, or potential, they could have been potential officers that, that now have gone down different career paths, get established in those careers, and they're like, screw it, I'm fine here. I'm making a good wage. I'm, I'm living a good life. It takes years to recruit and train officers. And with the amount of officers who have left the profession and the amount who never will enter, we are facing years, 
years of being short officers who will be able to keep our streets safe. Laws need to change now, as does the rhetoric around law enforcement, as does the marketing of law enforcement as a career, so the job becomes more desirable once again, and we have our children, and so we, we and our children can have the safe communities we deserve. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.